Over the last couple of weeks, we've been unpacking the I am's of Jesus. We've been exploring what it is that he's said about himself. And if you're part of our home groups, we've been also looking at what that means for each one of us individually. It's so important that we are a people who listen to his voice, who understand who he is, who are growing in our knowledge of Jesus, our relationship with him. It's so important, in fact, that we think that others should be in on the secret. Next week, Thursday, the 5th of October, and for the following couple of Thursdays, we're even hosting a course in our church where we will explicitly be sitting people down for dinner and turning to Jesus, asking the questions of who he said he is what it is that people claim that he has done, and why it is so important for each and every one of us. But this morning, I want us just to pivot slightly and not think about who Jesus says he is or the implications that has for each one of us individually. But I want us to consider this morning something of the truth of what it means for us, his people, us, the church. Because just as John's gospel is filled with these images, these picture portraits of Jesus in the I Ams, so too are the scriptures filled with illustrations of who God's people are. Because of who Jesus is, we are something in response. We're going to look specifically this morning at three images utilised in the New Testament to help the, under, the church to understand something of herself. And we're going to begin by looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Now this is by far and away the longest reading of us this morning and it's only the end really that we're going to be paying attention to in any sort of detail. But as we go, I want us to be noticing and thinking about how Christ, him, his activity, his finished work is what then sets the tone sets the description for God's people, the church. This is from Ephesians chapter 2, and it's Paul writing to those who had been welcomed in to the people of God. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Just like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved and God raises us up with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable richness of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not by works so that anyone could boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. 
So, therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant and the promises of God, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made these two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law which commands and regulates. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body, his body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away, and he preached peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people members of his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And him, in him too you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Actually, in that passage, Paul draws together loads of different images, but we're just going to focus on that last one. Did you see how Paul moved from making true statements about Jesus, and in particular, what Jesus has done, his work, his accomplishments, to making true statements about his church? And he finishes up by saying, because of what Jesus has done, his coming, his living, his dying, his rising to life again, his purposeful sacrifice in all of our place he finishes up by saying you now are all part of this one house this one building this one temple a building with a particular foundation it's interesting what he says some of us might find it a little bit confusing the language that he uses that you are a household built on the apostles and the prophets how of us how are we supposed to understand that? Well, we understand, I think, most of us, the imagery of having a firm foundation, about having something even and solid, enabling to you to build something that is robust and lasting. The apostles and prophets, that firm foundation, if you like, is a shorthand way for Paul to describe everything that they taught and communicated about who Jesus is and what he has done. This isn't them themselves as if their lives um, lend anything to the security of the church. But it's the truth that they share. It's the truth that they embody. It's the truth that they are sent ones, apostles, prophets, sent ones to communicate. The truth about who Jesus is, the truth about what he has done, makes us firm and solid. But more than that, Paul goes on and he clarifies that the chief cornerstone on that foundation is Christ himself. 
It's not necessarily something we're familiar in our culture. We know about having a firm foundation, but a cornerstone isn't something necessarily that we speak about so much. The cornerstone, if you are inclined to know, is part of the foundation that serves as a reference point for the entire rest of the building. All other measurements, all other parts of that building are marked off, are measured off with reference to it. Even the remaining foundations are marked off from that one guide point. It is the zero zero on your axis, as it were. The imagery is that if the cornerstone is right, then everything else follows. That is where the firmness, that is where the sturdiness comes from. And when you think about the illustration, it's also this warning, isn't it? That if we get the cornerstone wrong, then everything else is going to be out of place. Nothing else will ever get back to being level. Nothing else will ever get being back to put in place. And the consequences can be, could be disastrous. Here Paul is giving us this image of the church that takes the teaching of the apostles, what they communicate to us about who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus himself as the point from which all of our references are made. The picture of the church is as a building built on foundations that mean that we are determined, our life, our teaching, our values together by Christ and his completed work, that that must be what is central among us. Because Jesus is who he is, because what he has done is so powerful and important in creating us in the first place, he must always remain at the centre. A church that doesn't rest on the Christ that we meet in scripture is weak and wobbly, but a church that does is strong and stable. I wonder whether you've ever considered that before. It's so tempting and this temptation is even there at the start of Ephesians chapter 2. That we would organise ourselves, that we would arrange ourselves, not with reference to Jesus, but with reference to the world that we live in. Or with reference to the feelings and the desires and the ideas that we have. Surely the point of this image is to help us to see that everything in our corporate existence our life together as God's people, the church, should be marked off in reference to him. Our beliefs, we don't simply believe the things that sound palatable. We don't believe the things that sound preferable. We don't believe the things that would make us accepted and welcome in the world. We believe what is true that he shares with us. That is why we're going through the IRs. Our goals, our vision, our desire as a church, the things that we could do, the things that we should do, again, should not be dictated by the world that we live in, should not be dictated by the preference of our members, but should be uh, dictated by the God who marks us off. Our values. How much more should we be a church that reflects him, our cornerstone, than the world in which we dwell? He is our source. He is our starting point. And we should always be on the lookout for when society or self is creeping in rather than Christ as our starting point, our reference block. You think about stability and how we, if we were a starting point, could change our minds at the drop of a hat. Not just us individually, but society as well. 
culture changing, traditions, values out there changing, evolving, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. It's a, it's a, it's a sea. It's a sea of certainty with waves coming and crashing and tides rising and falling. But Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. We should be moulded and shaped by his image, not shaping and moulding him by our image. We are fashioned from him. That's such an important thing for us to remember as we move forward as a church. As we seek to unpack and explore and understand where it is that we could be and should be in the next three, four, five years together as a church, that is not about our preferences. It's not about aligning ourselves with the world, but it is beginning with Jesus and marking ourselves off from there. Well, that's the first image. Where else are we going to go? Well, throughout scripture as well, this image of the body is utilised. And it's used uh, chiefly and primarily, perhaps most famously, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In the midst of a discussion about the distribution of spiritual gifts amongst God's people, this is what Paul again writes. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, all its many parts form one body, and so it is with Christ. We're all baptised by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether that is Jews or Gentiles or slaves or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not stop for that reason being part of the body. And if a year should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were a ear, where would be the sense of smell? In fact, here's this truth, that God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wants them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and one body. And so the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. And while our presentable parts need no special treatment, God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that it lacks, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you, dear church, are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, seconds, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No. But we should eagerly desire the greater gift of faith, hope and love. 
When we understand bodies, what do we understand of them? We think of a body as being one complete unit, don't we? We can focus our attention in on different parts, but a body is an indivisible whole. You can't just split a body down the middle and get two bodies. However, when we do inspect bodies, we understand that that unified whole is made up of some really surprisingly diverse parts. You would, unless you had a microscope, struggle to find many similarities between brain cells and bones, or chromosomes and skin. Though the body is without a doubt one distinct thing, it consists of many diverse parts. And that is the picture that Paul is employing here when he's calling for two things, unity and diversity in the church. He's calling for unity amongst a church that is confused about the diversity that they see around it, the gifts and the callings that God is placing in the lives of its members. It's important for us to see with reference to Jesus that just as all healthy bodies should, Jesus being the head and the church being his body, have feet and hands and eyes and ears and noses and even unmentionable parts, that each part comes together to produce this wonderful whole. That is literally how bodies are constructed. Doesn't Paul say it there? That God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wants them to be. And conversely, that if a body ever became dominated by a particular part, or missing a part altogether, that the whole is severely disadvantaged. Do you know, if we thought of bodies truly in terms of uniformity, then that would be a picture of ill health, wouldn't it? If all I was was a foot, I wouldn't be a particularly healthy body. And here this image helps us to see and to understand about the church, that in Christ we are united, that in Christ we are one. No part of the body can say that it isn't part of him and his, and yet there must be and we must celebrate diversity. And diversity which culminates in mutual dependence. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, then every part rejoices with it. A church in which every single part is identical, it might display something fascinating to us, but it's not really united. It certainly won't be healthy. It won't be the sort of church that we encounter in our Bibles. And that means to us, brothers and sisters, that we can, as a church, be comfortable when we don't look like other churches. It's very often tempting for us to see the ministries of, the life of, another church in our area or another church around the world that we've encountered online, especially through the pandemic as we've switched over to YouTube and things like that. And we can have this desire, this longing, we need to be, we could be just like them. This image of the church as the body made of diverse parts should help us to be okay with the fact that we can look different as a church on the whole to other churches in Christ's body. 
that we can ask the question of God, well, where is it that you want us to be? What is it that you want us to do? How should we look here in Amford? More than that, it should help us not to look down on those who don't look exactly like us. Those in churches who don't necessarily prioritise or express their following and walking after Jesus in exactly the same way as us. Oh, that church has never started a food bank. They don't care about the poor. That should never be the case. You see, within the church, within Christ's body, there isn't just room for, there is the need for diversity. We see that on the macro scale between churches and churches, but we should also consider it on the, the micro scale as well. That even within our church, and this is really the context that Paul is speaking into most primarily, there should be a difference between each of our members. We shouldn't be forcing unity where it isn't required by Jesus. Thinking because my to return to the building metaphor, block is marked off from Jesus in this way, so must everyone else. No, the building needs to be made up of different blocks. The body is made up of different parts, and that is a good thing. That is a glorious thing. That helps us. That gives us the freedom to ask, well, how am I to live and to thrive and to add to the health of the body here in Amford? How is our church to add to the health of the body globally? If we understand ourselves because Jesus is the head and the church is his body, it gives us that freedom, that expectation, that difference can be a glorious part of the unity that we experience in him. The last place I want us to look this morning is the long-running biblical theme drawn together in Revelation 19 of God's people as his bride and he as their groom. In Revelation 19, we read this. John, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder and shouting. And this is what he, they said, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. The imagery of God as the groom, his people as his bride, culminates in this marriage feast of the Lamb found in Revelation 19. We see this perfect bride coming before an all-conquering saviour. The church is the bride and Christ is her groom. And even on a very surface level, this picture speaks to us of the love which we have received from Jesus, doesn't it? That a marriage speaks to us about love. The simplest way for any of us to understand a wedding is love being shared between two people. Sometimes that love spills over and those simply uh, witnessing the occasion begin to cry. And yet this picture goes deeper than that still. Deeper than vows and rings. Because it isn't just Jesus who's named in the place of the groom. It's the lamb, the lamb that was 
slain. In this picture, in this understanding and explanation of Christ's relationship with the church, the groom is the one who loves the bride even to the point of dying for her. It's no wonder that Paul drew on this very picture later on in his letter to the Ephesians. And he speaks about how husbands should love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Do you see the picture is of the church who is the recipient. The recipient of the true extent of God's care and concern and love for her. A church that has not been loved in such a way would never be acceptable to the group coming in their filthy rags. But instead, this groom has prepared, earned, offered, fine, bright, clean, washed linen. A church that has received that from her groom can come with immense confidence in the care that he will continue to show her. How do we understand that as applying for us? Well, other than filling our hearts with gladness and joy that we have received such love, it can give us the confidence that wherever he is taking us, he is one who supplies for our needs. His love ensures that we have what we need wherever he is taking us. Sometimes life, individually as well as corporately, can be scary, can't it? It can feel like God is leading us, God is directing us in a certain direction. We read his word, we decide to mark ourselves off from Christ and his teachings and his work. And we think, well, that's a long way from where we are. And it can be terrifying to think how we can get somewhere. Surely this image helps us to see that he is one who not only calls and leads, but in love supplies. That actually our life should look like depending on him, relying on him and only him for moving forward and making advancements. His love ensures we have what we need. That should give us courage and hope for the future, even when the goals seem far away. And those are just three of the images that we find in scripture of how Jesus and who he is, what he has done, has a massive impact on who we are together. If we are a building, then he is the cornerstone. He is always our point of reference. We define ourselves from him. Not our world, not our emotions, from our saviour. He is the head of a body, which means that we must necessarily be different sorts of parts. Drawn together, yes, having unity, but expressing that living that out for the common good in different ways. And we needn't be afraid of the diversity of gifts and callings and circumstances that exist within the church. And that he is a groom, which means we are a bride and he has sacrificed himself in love for us. So it doesn't matter where it is that he is calling us and leading us, he surely will be equipping us. My prayer for us this morning, as with every week, is that as we come to know Jesus more, we would actually understand more of what that means about us, individually and corporately, and how we should be living in light of Jesus. 
Can I pray in that direction? Lord God, we thank you for the truth of who Jesus is, as we have been and as we will be in the I Ams, and we see him more gloriously. Lord, that we would continue to have the gaps filled in about our own lives. Lord, I thank you for these pictures and others in Scripture, which help us to understand what life is supposed to be like in the church. Help us always to, to move forward to exist with reference to who he is. That he would remain the center, that he would remain the head, that he would be the source of love and life for us always. Not to go our own way, not to go the world's way, not to go astray, but to follow and to exist in him who has done so much for us. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.